0: And welcome to Engineering a Better World from the House Magazine and the Institution of Engineering and Technology. I'm Janina Bailey, Policy Editor of the House Magazine. Can technology deliver a better society? In this series from the heart of Westminster, the House Magazine and the IET discuss with parliamentarians and industry experts how technology and engineering can provide policy solutions for our changing world. In this episode, we'll explore some of the issues around net zero, including the challenges of wind power. We will be addressing the complications of the government's net zero target, the pathways to achieving net zero, and the role that engineering and other businesses are already playing and can play in the future in getting there. I'm joined by Elaine Gregg, member of the IET Energy Policy Panel and director at Renewables Consulting Group. Elaine, what does net zero mean in practice for the engineering and technology sector?
1: I think net zero is a huge opportunity for engineering and technology. We're part of the solution. And historically, maybe we have been seen part of the problem, but now we are part of the solution. And especially for young people coming into the world, being able to do something positive to support the planet, engineering and technology is a great outlet for people's enthusiasm. The IET in particular is looking at whole energy systems. Whilst we focus very much on electricity or transport or heat, what we're seeing now a lot more with net zero is the crossover between those. So take the transport sector, for example, to electrify vehicles, you're shifting that energy need from direct petroleum into electricity, which then increases the electricity need. There's a huge trade-off between the different technologies and what the IET panel is seeking to do is make sure that everyone is aware of all those interconnections, those interdependencies and how the whole system together can become net zero. And we don't end up accidentally focusing on one part to the detriment of another part and shooting ourselves in the foot.
0: And we're joined now, as well as Elaine, by Alan Brown, the MP for Kilmarnock and Loudon and the SNP Spokesman for Energy and Climate Change. And Jerome Mayhew, MP for Broadland and member of the Environmental Audit Select Committee. Welcome both.
2: Hey there. Thank you very much.
0: Jerome, I'm going to start with you. You have a a coastal constituency and the UK is well placed to benefit from offshore wind. And that's what we're going to be focusing on in this next section. What are the challenges for the UK in maximising the potential of offshore wind?
2: Well, just starting with a short correction, I I nearly have a coastal constituency. I get to within about three miles in Broadland in Norfolk. The challenges we've got, well, let's first of all start with the opportunities. We are blessed with the North Sea, which is relatively speaking very shallow, and it lends itself very well for the generation of offshore renewable electricity, because it's both shallow and windy. And the same could be said for large sections of the Irish Sea. So we have, through the development of the government's policy on offshore wind since 2010, got to the stage where we have developed the largest offshore wind industry in the world by some margin. So we've got a good start, but there's a huge amount more to be done. And the Prime Minister famously set the target just a few months ago to increase our current offshore wind capacity, which is about 10 gigawatts of generating capacity. He wants to increase it to 40 gigawatts by 2030. And to put that into perspective, currently the entire generating capacity of the United Kingdom, including nuclear, is about 68 gigawatts. So we're going to be putting more than half of that in offshore
3: within the next 10 years.
0: Alan, Scotland as well has a lot of space and a lot of wind. What What's your response to what Jerome said there?
3: A lot of what Jerome says makes sense. We've certainly got fantastic opportunities. And I think he highlighted correctly the challenge is being able to de- deploy all that. So that means even the UK government controls like the contracts for difference auctions. So that process has actually got to be managed in order to actually allow the investment to continue. So the, the contractual difference allows the bids effectively into the, effective to the market. So that, that's one thing. There's another challenge, which is actually managing offshore network in terms of there's proposals for an offshore grid. But that needs to come on stream and be designed much quicker than, than the rate of progress at the moment. And then when you look at overall how you deploy offshore wind, so Scotland's got fantastic opportunities. When actually Scotland, we are disadvantaged at the moment with the existing UK system in terms of how the the grid charging network operates. Now, an example of that is if you're connecting to the national grid in the north of Scotland, you pay something like £25 per unit of energy to discharge that energy into the system. If you're connecting to the south of England, you actually get paid to connect your electricity into the grid. So that's a big disadvantage for developers in Scottish waters, and that's something that needs to be addressed if there's going by a UK-wide approach and the so-called levelling-up agenda.
2: Alan's absolutely right on, on two issues. The first one is the need for speed in the development of an offshore transmission network. As I've suggested, we're going to be increasing offshore production capacity by a massive 30 gigawatts over the next 10 years. And yet, under the current plans of the government, the offshore transmission network, which the government and the industry both accept is the right way to go, that is only going to come on, on stream from 2030 onwards. So it's a classic example of the cart before the horse. So we must accelerate the rollout of the offshore transmission network so we can get rid of point-to-point connection, which is the current regulatory framework, and move to a much more sensible method of connection. The other point that Alan made, which was about the ease of connection and the cost of connection, for renewables joining the transmission network in Scotland, he's quite right that we need to increase the infrastructure, the transmission infrastructure of our electricity network as we ramp up the overall level of production to absorb some of the increased energy requirements as we move from fossil fuels creating energy to electricity. That's why National Grid ESA have already got plans for the long-distance seabed high-voltage Direct common current connector, so that's HVDC connectors from Scotland down to England.
0: Elaine, you've worked in wind for 27 years now. Could you firstly kind of maybe explain a little bit about how it actually works and also then address some of these issues around the challenges and opportunities that we face and the size of investment needed to scale up to deliver what Jerome and Alan have been talking about?
1: Yeah, sure. I think before we start talking about the, the growth, I think it's important to appreciate where we currently are. Looking at power production today, at this minute, the demand for the country is just under 34 gigawatts. Renewables is providing 17 of those. And wind, albeit on and offshore, is 11 gigawatts. And that is the largest provider of electricity to the country at this moment. So we have come a huge long way. And we are now actually, as a wind sector, fairly leading and dominant in in terms of electricity production. But we have got a huge way to go. And this is where the whole energy system piece comes in, because the rest of the energy is currently provided by biomass and solar and interconnectors. But the second largest is gas at seven gigawatts. Most of the gas goes to domestic heating, but the second largest on electricity is gas. So that's not actually a huge step for us to displace that gas using wind. We need to keep the grid stable. That's a technical issue. We can deal with that. But for today, to displace that gas with wind is not a huge step, but the big step is then changing domestic heating to electric, changing transport to electric, changing everything else that we have to electric, and the future predictions, the scenarios that national grids work with, is talking about a much bigger electrical supply than we have today, and that is to come from renewables, and this is where the big targets come in. The secondary side of that is actually, do we export? And we are connected to the continent. The electricity is needed where people are. So that's why it currently costs so much to connect it in the north of Scotland, because it's not very populated. The population centres are in the south, and that's where the power is needed. And it costs money to transport that power. And the uh, historical arrangement has been such that the people who locate remote from the load centres are the ones that pay for that because you can move the fuel. So if you're shipping coal or piping gas, you can move the fuel. With wind, we can't move the fuel. So we maybe have to think about it a little bit differently and say, actually, electricity can be generated in one location. We need to make the best of that resource. And as an an industry, move that to where it's needed in a better way. That needn't necessarily be transmission lines. You know, my colleagues at the moment are talking about ammonia rather than hydrogen. There are other other ways to transport energy, but we need to focus on what we're using our precious resource for, because we have a huge amount of resource in the North Sea, but it's not just there for wind. There's oil and gas users, there's shipping users, there's fishing, there's environmental protection. And it is a scarce resource and we have to make the best use of that resource, both for capturing the energy and then transporting it to shore and to the load centres wherever they may be.
3: Could I come back in just another challenge and opportunity in terms of deployment of offshore wind? And that's actually making sure we get proper jobs out the investment as well. So there is an existing target of 60% UK content to be in the contracts that are awarded. And I remain unconvinced that that's getting achieved at the moment. So in Scotland, we've seen the Bifab fabrication yards, Gint administration, CS Wind in Campbelltown, which can do turbines. is effectively mothballed. There's a a yard in Teesside mothballed at the moment. So a lot more needs to be done to ensure that there's actually indigenous industry created and supported. There's a continuous pipeline and supply chain developed within the UK so that we'll actually get a proper green recovery. Will get the benefit of this utilizing this cheaper electricity generation resource as well.
1: Absolutely. And the scaling up really does help with that because it gives the manufacturers confidence in the supply chain and then they can then invest and they can bring down costs. And we've seen that in Siemens factory on Humberside just recently that they've proposed to expand that factory with a lot more jobs because of the awards in round four all on that eastern coast. So if we have the capacity, the supply chain can then come in behind that and invest locally. And I do know that some of the fabricators in Scotland have struggled. They're simply up against competition that they can't manage to compete with on a price basis. If we have volume, maybe they can start to compete.
2: I think that that's right. We're often described as having a world-leading offshore wind industry in this country. And I disagree. I think we're world-leading at buying it. We're not world-leading at producing it. And you only have to look at the five biggest offshore wind projects going on at the moment. And every single one of them is dominated by Scandinavian or German organisations like Orsted and Vattenfall. So Alan is absolutely right. We need to give clear market signals that there is a long-term investable opportunity here. And that's why I think the the Prime Minister's, call it bold, call it ambitious, announcement of the goal to get 40 gigawatts of offshore wind in the next 10 years is a very, very clear market signal that we're going hell for leather on this. And it's for that reason, I suspect, that the big oil majors like BP have come into the round four leasing in the last few weeks and bid themselves into this market. I'm hopeful that with the domestic oil majors getting heavily involved now, that we're going to have the the oomph behind the domestic industry to build up the supply chain, as Alan suggested.
0: Now we'll be hearing from Andrew Griffith, the UK's net zero business champion. I'm joined now by Andrew Griffith, the Conservative MP for Arundel and South Downs and the UK's net zero business champion. Welcome, Andrew.
3: Oh,
4: Thank you for having me.
0: So, can we just start by what exactly does it mean to be the UK's net zero business champion?
4: Well, in this year of climate action, which obviously extends through the G7 but culminates in the COP26 in November, there's a huge amount that business can do. I'm particularly focused in the UK, where businesses are already leading on taking action, but trying to use that momentum to work with businesses to support the Prime Minister's objectives. Those of the COP president and to ultimately make sure that business makes a really big contribution to climate action at this important time.
0: So how much of the solution do you think to the UK's net zero challenge is going to come from business compared to, for example, individual consumers and households?
4: Well, I think business is at the heart. I mean, if you think about the economy, it is made up of consumers, but the bulk of that is the economic activity of businesses, big and small. So every business has a role to play. And business is this huge force for problem-solving good in society, whether it's creating a new vaccine, putting food on our table, or taking action on climate. Business is absolutely at the heart of that. And there are a lot of opportunities. That stem from that for businesses as well. The, the businesses that take action now will be the most sustainable for the future. They'll attract more investors, more consumers, and they're liberating, you know, just wonderful technology that I see every day that is helping us undertake the really big, epic scale challenge of decarbonizing our whole economy. So business is absolutely at the heart of this.
0: And you obviously have quite an extensive background in business before coming into Parliament. Now, How are you using that to inform this role?
4: Well, I'm spending my time with businesses, as I say, big and small, if it's a very large business, speaking to the chairman, the board, explain to them the importance of signing up to initiatives like Race to Zero. That's a big kite mark that shows that businesses are taking their responsibilities seriously, are setting science-based targets compatible with the one and a half degrees that we need to see. So I'm able to talk to them in a language that they understand and to impress upon them the business benefits of taking action, but also working with their supply chain right down to the very smallest businesses. And there, my experience as a Member of Parliament, uh, out on high streets, up and down my part of the world, and knowing how other members of Parliament do the same, will help us mobilise the tale of of small businesses, which, when you add it all up, is also a really big, significant footprint in terms of the climate. So big and small, there are lots of things that businesses can do. What they often need, because everyone in business is time-limited, are simple, actionable ways that, that they can take action.
0: And you touched earlier on COP. Uh, I'm working with Alok Sharma, the COP president, in this role. And how much do you think that COP is going to focus on the achievements of business and what business can do?
4: Well, I think a great deal. I mean, the um, COP president has got his own business leaders roundtable globally. We've got some UK businesses as part of that. And the process is really the 34 or so weeks that we've got from when we speak now, Georgina, to the run up to COP. So locally and globally, businesses can pledge they can take action, they can start the the hard yards of decarbonising their businesses. And that both sets an example to global leaders, but also gives global leaders the confidence to set their own ambitious country level targets, knowing that that's underpinned by the action of the businesses that they represent as well.
0: And how do we ensure that when obviously talking about climate change is such a popular conversation and it's something that consumers are increasingly looking out for, that businesses aren't just greenwashing and saying they're doing things sustainably, maybe with some kind of window displays about what their green credentials are, where actually they are still investing in quite heavily polluting practices. How do we ensure that businesses aren't just talking the talk, but they are also walking the walk when it comes to net zero?
4: I think a couple of things. but, But first of all, I mean, the businesses that I see every day, and these are large swathes of the business community, are taking real action at a big and and small level. Science-based targets provides a rigour around the actions that business takes. So it can't just be words, it has to be followed through with actions. And secondly, data and reporting, dull though that sometimes sounds, is absolutely at the heart of this so that people can track progress. There's a degree of transparency to see that the journey's actually been followed. And of course, that provides a feedback loop. And typically what we find is a business will make a target or an ambition and set itself. And once it's mobilised some of the brilliant, sometimes engineering skills, Georgina, once it's mobilised those, it often comes back and is able to set itself an even more ambitious target. We've seen that, for example, with Vodafone in the UK, that was one of the earliest to sign up to net zero to set itself targets. And it's now it's now shortened the period before it, it can make itself net zero. So once businesses actually get into it, they can often improve even their own targets. It's often about taking that first step.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting what you're saying about the need for ambition there. And what do you think is the correct balance then between carrot and stick when it comes to business and net zero? How do we properly incentivize business to get on board with this? Or is it something that is self-incentivizing?
4: I think a bit of everything. There's clearly a global movement now happening almost in real time. Even since I took on this role, I've seen an increase in the the pace. The number of big companies in the UK that have signed up to race to zero has more than doubled in the last six months. So this is a growing and accelerating force. Investors are doing the same. And we know that consumers to a degree have led businesses for some time. So those businesses that that do jump as it were will be rewarded in my view. they'll attract more investment and be more successful with their consumers or with procuring business from government if that's the the business that they're in. I think it's mostly carrot. There's a role for stick sometimes to um to sweep up where you've got a an industry that's made perhaps a bit fragmented. The early adopters have moved, they've created the technology in their supply chain to help everybody decarbonize. Uh, but there's a tail and government action, as well as sometimes government money, can be really helpful in that respect. I mean, one example we're all familiar with now is automotive, where the technology has got to a stage where it is appropriate to set an end date to sort of sweep up at the back of the peloton and say, if you haven't got on board by uh, 2030 or 2035, then really you, you have to at that point. But it's mostly carrot, and I do want to emphasise the really positive conversations that I'm having with businesses all the time.
0: So you took on this role in November, is that correct?
4: Yes, I did. Yeah.
0: And you said you've seen an increase in people jumping since then. And the other big thing that's been going on since then, it's COVID. Do you think that COVID has changed the way that we talk about green business and green recovery in this country?
4: Yeah, I think it's I mean it's a terrible thing to say that there's a sort of silver lining to something that's that's robbed so many people of loved ones and sometimes livelihoods. But I do think it's both given people the confidence to make changes. Many businesses have had to make really big, profound changes to their business model in the space of weeks or months that would previously have taken years, and also a slight awareness, greater awareness, of the environment in which business operates. So I think you know, whilst it's been challenging in many respects, there will be this sense of, you know, coming back, but coming back a bit more greener and using the opportunity to to reinvent things a bit, which will definitely be positive. That, of course, has culminated in the growing awareness of this this whole issue about climate action. So people are ready now to embrace that. And in so many areas, the technology is, is ready to help them. People are bringing forward industrial scale pilots of carbon capture and storage uh, in aviation, sustainable aviation fuel, even hydrogen powered flight. There's lots of green mobility solutions out there. So in the space that we've been looking at this, science, technology, engineers are coming up with the solutions. So they're now ready to be adopted.
0: And what is your role in encouraging or linking business to take up these new solutions?
4: I'm a bridge I hope to some of the brilliant work that government departments are doing there's a lot of money and investment going out there to communicate policies again we've we've seen a, a real rash of policies in this space from the prime minister's green 10 point plan for an industrial green industrial revolution to the radical and forward looking energy white paper to some particular measures in the budget and a lot of investment that's going in. So so hopefully I can help people navigate that. There is good work going on across all of government. And again, sometimes that can just be a lot for businesses to take in. They're running the day job. Yeah. Um, and it's not always easy to, to stay up to speed with that.
0: This is obviously, as we're seeing with COP and the G7, you already touched on, it's a global challenge. This isn't just something that the UK is facing. But how well equipped are we as a country to to hit net zero?
4: I think we are fantastically well-equipped in most respects. We've got a great science base, a strong pedigree of industrial engineering that will turn that science and research into practical solutions. And we've got great green capital in things like the City of London and professional services. So I think, you know, the basic raw material for us to make this change is really, really good. That doesn't mean there's not work to do. Some of that works in flight. If you look at the expansion of offshore wind, for example, that's going on right now. But we've also got to look at things that, like the skills agenda that I know the IET have been uh, talking about. And that will, if we don't get that right, that will be one of the impediments to making this work. There are going to be hundreds of thousands of new jobs in this space. And to fulfil those jobs and, and to do so and get the benefits for the UK, Uh, We do need to make sure that we're producing the pipeline of people coming through. That's why things like the Green Jobs Task Force uh, is really important so that we can make sure that we're actually creating those jobs. And then downstream of that, things like apprenticeships, skills boot camps, traineeships, T-levels and the National Skills Fund. So we need to get all of that right. But I do think we have all the basic ingredients to do really, really well in this space.
0: Do you think that the budget last week provided the appropriate support to help the UK harness those opportunities that you've spoken about?
4: Yes, I do. I think there's a lot before the budget, already investment that was already committed and protected in the comprehensive spending review. Uh, There were some additional measures, things like the National Infrastructure Bank, the transition to a new low carbon infrastructure, I think will be at the heart of a lot of those. You're seeing some of the leveling up money is being used to create new hubs. Uh, around low carbon industries. And the big opportunity potentially is the super deduction, uh, which will allow right in the period where most businesses are engaging in looking at retooling their businesses, it'll give them the ability to take advantage of that super deduction and get more than 100% of their tax credit relief on that. So I think there's lots there in in, in the budget, but there was also a lot there before, to be clear, in the 10-point plan and in the energy yeah. white paper, that's going to set out the demand curves for many of these future industries for decades to come.
0: So you spoke there about decades. We are looking, this is a long term project, it is not something that could be achieved in one electoral cycle. But 2050 is is quite a long way away. And there are a lot of people that are calling for us to hit net zero a lot sooner. When do you think we will hit the net zero target in the UK? Do you think it could be sooner than 2050?
4: I think it will be, be, be earlier than that. I don't know the year. I, I know that we've set one of the most ambitious nationally determined contribution numbers to reduce our emissions by 68% by 2030 uh, against 1990 levels. So that is, that is stretching. But in terms of 2050, I think the deployment of our fantastic entrepreneurs, our research scientists, mobilising lots of capital, and our strength in in industrial engineering will all be things that once we put our minds to the problem, and just put our problem solving hats on, actually, I think we'll find we'll be able to move quite a lot faster than than that.
0: And finally, is there any additional policies that you'd like to see to support business in their move to net zero? I I actually think
4: there's a lot out there already. So I'd like to see those made you know very accessible to businesses but there are a great number of initiatives uh, many of them led by the department for business energy and industrial strategy but i'd also really like to see every business feel that they can get involved and we'll be launching a small business mass participation campaign in the coming months which will mean that every business the largest to the smallest can be sitting there looking at the simple actions that they can take so whether that's that's government support or whether it's simply Government using its power to provide simplicity and cut through communications, there's a great deal that that we we can do and that I'm going to spend my time, Georgina, focused on over the coming months.
0: Thanks so much, Andrew. What can we do about making sure we have the skills to meet that need in the supply chain, though, as we uh, hopefully upscale our onshore production of the supplies for wind farms or the different elements to do with wind power. Do we currently have the skills in this country to do that?
2: The answer is yes we do. We have a number of the skills, mainly from the offshore oil and gas industry. So they have great expertise of the waters, they have great expertise in the management of off- offshore installations and in their maintenance which is, again, going to be a large and increasing issue as your wind farms mature. But there are sectors, technical sectors, where the technology advances have been developed in Denmark, primarily in Germany. And we've got to play catch up there. And that's where we need some the long term signals, long term market signals to say this is going to be a big market and a growing market. And it's worth it the big businesses like the oil majors getting in and playing catch up because they've been caught in the hot, frankly, over the last 10 years by the development and the success of our offshore wind industry off the backs of Scandinavian business. As a free marketeer, my view is that as the market develops, then that's going to bring in its own training. It's going to start off with the oil majors, but that will spread out as the supply chain develops through the country.
3: I would like to say I agreed with everything Jeremy said there until the very end when he threw in the free marketeer thing, because if you think earlier on, you said that we're a world leader in buying offshore wind rather than having the industry round about it. If we just continue in absolute free market principles, which is cheapest cost wins, then we're not going to develop that supply chain. And I actually think the contracts for difference auctions, and I've called for this for a few years now, is that there should be changes to the Procurement rules that's incentivise the use of UK supply chains. So it, it could be local content stipulations. It could be incentives around creation of jobs and apprentices. And once you do that, it's, that that's effectively, you're providing a subsidy for UK firms to bid and get their foot in the ladder. And then after that, they become more efficient and they're able then to compete in the free market. But you actually need to do things that gives them a, a foothold to start with.
2: No, I I accept that in a new industry like this, there is a role for government under the contract for difference scheme, perhaps, or or something similar to give inflated price for the product to get the industry up and running. But it's a criticism of our oil majors that they've sold the past for the last decade. They're now going to have to pay catch up.
1: I think I, I would actually challenge that because you keep talking about getting the industry up and running. We are up and running as an industry. The competition for the latest leasing round showed that there's way more people want to develop and able to develop in these waters than we are giving capacity for. It's news. I don't know if it's come from the horse's mouth, but BP consortium stated that they weren't going to apply for a contract for difference. So we're effectively following the Dutch market, the Danish market, and going subsidy free. So, you can't control a market that's not dependent upon that subsidy and is also already fairly mature. Sorry,
0: just um, for those of our listeners who might not be quite as uh, energy wonky as everyone on this call, would someone mind explaining just to them what the contract for difference means?
2: In layman's terms, it gives a guaranteed price for the end product. So, it allows you to invest with confidence. Perhaps an increased amount of capital than you would otherwise feel confident if you had a a variable price for your product at the end of it. So you get a contract for difference, which guarantees a a certain price per watt of energy produced.
3: Basically, it's a a fifteen-year contract where you're guaranteed that minimum price for energy, so investors can invest the capital knowing what their terms going to be in terms of electricity generation that 15 year concession period
0: great thank you and elaine just coming back to you on that point about the maturity of the wind market if the market is already mature then what support does it need from the government to develop further
1: what developers need is largely clarity and the ability to develop that portfolio and to build out in a coherent networked way we're very much still project by project and the seabed is a scarce resource But even scarcer is the number of landing points of cables to shore. And we're in danger of shooting ourselves in the foot for five, ten years time by just continuing on the path we are now, developing project by project, turning down half a project, forcing it to use up its shore landing capacity. Then in five years time, it gets the other half and has to use some more shore landing capacity that there isn't. What developers need is they have to develop projects, they have to finance those projects, but they have to also see that pipeline and be able to plan for the longer term and know where National Grid is going, know where other developers are going. Every project that we develop offshore goes through an HRA, a Habitat Regulations Assessment. And that's actually being a bit of a squeeze on the industry at the moment because of the cautious nature of taking it step by step. Developers would happily go a lot quicker, but being a responsible developer, you have a a certain speed that you have to slow down to, to make sure that everything's okay before you actually go and build. And it's just making sure that we can get through all those hurdles in a good enough time frame that meets the targets.
2: Elaine is so right. She's absolutely right in identifying the key problem for the industry is the current regulatory framework. So Ofgem, which is the National Regulator are currently by statute required for every individual wind farm to connect separately to the National Transmission Network. And the National Transmission Network is prohibited from making anticipatory infrastructure investment out towards the North Sea in order to meet the anticipated demand. Everyone realises this is a total nonsense, and it has really devastating impacts on, on land communities, including in my constituency, where I have villages such as Corston and other ones like Alton, which have multiple trenches being dug across them, some even crossing over each other to travel over 30 miles inland to connect individually to the transmission network. It's an absolute priority for the government to introduce an energy bill to change the regulatory framework that Ofgem is uh, required currently to work under, to get the anticipatory infrastructure out into the North Sea with an offshore transmission network as a matter of national priority, if we're going to be serious about hitting not just the 40 gigawatts by 2030, because that's only the start, as we all know. We've got to get this out there in order to grow beyond that, to facilitate the wind down of internal combustion engines by 2030 onwards. So I am very, very keen and have been lobbying Bayes repeatedly, I'm sorry to say on, for them, about the importance of getting an energy bill through Parliament as a matter of extreme urgency. But I recognise that we've been talking about scarce resources and time on the, the House of Commons and the House of Lords is also a scarce resource. And it's, it's going to take a number of months.
0: Alan, I was wondering if I could bring you in here on the role of onshore wind and where we see development for that going in the future.
3: Onshore wind certainly was a big success story in Scotland. Now, again, part of that's to do with the, the purchasing of it and rather than, unfortunately, man, manufacturing of turbines in Scotland. But it was a great success because the Scottish Government embraced the concept of renewable onshore wind. But actually, the, for want of a bad pun, the wind was taken out of sales a few years ago when the Conservative government actually pulled a subsidy for onshore wind, so they weren't allowed actually to bid on CFD auctions, contract for different auctions for two of the auction rounds there, so that actually stalled the installation of onshore wind. But even then Scotland had a target of to generate the equivalent of 100% of our electricity usage from renewable energy by the end of 2020. And we've effectively met that target. So Scotland did embrace renewable technologies where there seemed to be much more widespread opposition down south, which then fed into the politicians actually resisting the, the deployment of onshore wind. But the good news is after making the case for onshore wind, they not going to be allowed to bid in the next round for contracts for difference. Hopefully we'll see further deployment in Scotland.
2: I think the rationale there was that onshore wind quite naturally produces uh, a huge amount of split opinion in local communities, whether you're in Scotland, England or Wales or Northern Ireland. What the government has done, communities can bid for onshore facilities in the coming rounds on condition that there is local approval. So it balances the the desire and frankly, it's, it's cheaper to create energy from onshore installations than offshore, which is a good thing, but it needs to be done with the consent of the local population, and that's the difference.
3: One problem we had there from the Scottish perspective, though, is that Scotland still was happy to see further deployment of onshore wind, but it was a sledgehammer to crack the nut, so Scottish developers couldn't bid into the contracts for difference options because the Conservative government had taken that approach. It really did hamper Scotland.
1: I think what we have there is is a historic example of a reactionary measure that people saw something, they were worried, and the development was stopped. And that has knocked back the onshore wind in Scotland and obviously the rest of the UK. What we've got to be careful of with offshore wind is that we do it in a controlled way with everyone on board. And we don't get that kind of, I've got a problem, big reaction, stop everything, think about it, then start again, because that will disrupt our targets. We need to be thinking about it in advance and bringing everyone on board with us along the way.
0: Thank you. I mean, I think some of the issues that we've been talking about, so the issues of skills, onshore manufacturing, what role the government should play in the market, the existing infrastructure, they're not just applicable to the wind industry, but our effort more broadly to get to net zero. What is the learning that you think we can take? from wind
3: for across the rest of the energy sector? I think one thing you've got to be consistent. What we just spoke about about onshore wind, where suddenly from nowhere subsidy was moved and you know onshore wind wasn't allowed to burden the contracts for difference. So I think you've got to set a clear pathway. I also think there's a lot of policies still to be developed with the UK government in terms of achieving net zero to get a net zero strategy. So I think a lot of them have to come together. Elaine's correctly spoke about the need to decarbonise our heating system. So there's still a heating buildings decarbonisation strategy to come out from UK government. The Scottish government's consulting in their own one at the moment, but certainly UK government needs to move forward on that. So it's actually having a, a clear vision and putting the policies in place to match that vision. In some some cases, that means also the funding, so there's investor confidence. And some of that, Hydrogen, for example, the production of green hydrogen, which actually aligns with the offshore wind and floating offshore wind. So actually getting that strategy in place and getting a route to market for that is going to be important. And it's getting these mechanisms in place at the right time to allow the research and innovation to go forward. Then the investors put the money and then products.
2: Yes, I think we're broadly in agreement on that. The most important factor from my perspective is a long-term market signal because businesses need to have confidence that this isn't a short-term policy that's going to change and that this is the long-term direction of government and pretty much irrespective of who which party is in power i think that's as much Consensus on policy in for long-term electricity and energy generation is really important. And then the, the second thing, which I think you can uh, take from the offshore wind experience, was how important the inflated contracts for difference were back in the early years, because that was what started, that pump-primed that sector. And you, you look at hydrogen, and you look at floating offshore And you also look at carbon capture and storage, which is going to be crucially important in in my view. Each one of those, the government has placed a bet on in order to pump prime that technology by investing hundreds of millions into those sectors so that we can get up and running. And then once the industry is established, then to step back and let the free market drive efficiencies and costs down.
1: I think the other thing to consider is that there's actually quite a difference between the wind industry and potentially further zero carbon because the wind industry is part of the electricity industry and the vast majority of people they get their electricity out of the plug they may choose a green supplier it's an online form that's the extent of the engagement but the big decarbonisation needs to come in transport and domestic heating and other land use And that requires much more social engagement. It requires people to change their car, their boiler, their something. And maybe that's something that people don't notice because that's just the only boilers on the market. Or maybe it's something that needs to be scheduled with a much more public facing perception. Because I think it is more omnipresent than people are aware of, because people just don't know how much there is offshore. They don't know how much of our electricity is currently provided by wind because they don't look at that on a daily basis and you don't if you're not in the electricity industry. Elaine's given two examples there but I think they're they're
2: actually quite different. So if you look at transport that is a sector which is going to change pretty much whether people take an active decision to become electric or not because of the long-term market signal the government has already given that they're going to phase out the sale of the internal combustion engine by 2030. And so the sector, that statement didn't cost the government a penny. And yet it has had profound impacts on manufacturing of vehicles. And right across the board, manufacturers are moving en masse to wholly electric ranges. What's different is with domestic heating, which is much more difficult to solve, and it's much more impactful on people's everyday lives. So in the Environmental Audit Committee, we've heard evidence that the government's assuming that to improve insulation for the already built domestic housing stock, it's going to cost about £5,800 from memory per property. But the evidence we've heard from social house owners who have already undertaken this work is that it's it's four times as much as that. It's over £20,000 on average per property. And it's very intrusive. You pretty much have to move out in order to get those kind of works undertaken. That's a much, much thornier problem to solve. And I'm concerned that the government's assessment of the cost of that, what needs to be done, has been underbaked.
3: I think that goes back to having also clear policies. So in terms of energy efficiency, the the Conservatives committed to £9.2 billion in their manifesto, but the government's not actually committed that money yet. The government's also set a target for the rollout of heat pumps. Now, for heat pumps to be properly effective in houses, then you need to make sure the houses are properly energy efficient. So, therefore, you need to start planning ahead in terms of energy efficiency programs aligning with the installation of heat pumps. You should actually be doing that with people that are not on the gas grid at the moment because there's no alternative like a hydrogen network for properties are off-grid so you've really got to start planning that process at the moment and it can be intrusive and at the moment it would take several visits and several work streams at somebody's house to get the actual upgrades that's required so you actually that in itself would then be off-putting for homeowners or, or tenants and so you actually need to get as I say the policies need to align and you need to then have companies that can do all the coordination and try and get the stage where you do all the, the proper installations and a, a series of work in one work stream, if that makes sense.
2: I totally agree with that. And it, it starts with who's going to pay for this. So we can argue over whether the government should pay for some of this out of central taxation or whether the finance sector can be unleashed in this area. And I think there's a lot to be learned from the German example where they have a secondary green mortgage industry When you get a subsidised second additional mortgage of, let's say, 30,000 euros, which allows you to undertake the energy efficiency enhancements that that building requires as you change ownership, and it has very, very subsidised repayment mechanisms. We've then got to have a workforce which is capable of installing up to 600,000 heat pumps and the associated insulation per year. This is a huge, huge task that is not nearly advanced in in terms of the solutions that offshore wind is, for example.
0: Finally, I want to come to you, Elaine, in terms of do we have any engineering technology solutions that are in the pipeline that we might expect to come on stream soon that will boost uh, our national effort to get to net zero?
1: Yeah, the IET has um, worked in, in any kind of new area coming up. There are reports produced on hydrogen. I know there's a transport panel. I'm not directly involved myself. But the IOT is very active from several angles on the net zero target. Our panel, the energy policy panel, as we said, it it looks at uh, the holistic energy picture. And we actively try and encourage people to together to speak together who might not normally. So someone who's working in oil and gas, talking to someone who's working in transmission, talking to a, a developer with the Crown Estate, with someone who's actually landowner on a beach just to get the people together because if you understand each other's problems you come to a joint solution um, and we try and actively help people not working in silos and that goes across our panels as well so the energy panel we would work with the the transport panel on joint projects.
0: Thank you all so much that was really really interesting and uh, hopefully we'll see a lot more development of wind in the future. Thanks for listening to Engineering a Better World, a new podcast from The House magazine and the Institution of Engineering and Technology. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, or wherever you usually go for your podcast fix. And if you enjoy the show, please do leave us a rating and review. Production and editing on Engineering a Better World is by James Miller and Nick Hilton for Poddo.